through this passage, I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending that this is history. I'm taking that for granted. So you just are aware of that. If you have issue with the history of this story, uh, afterwards, feel free to come and talk to me. But I am coming to this passage with the, the unapologetic notion that I believe that this actually happened. Okay, I believe that this isn't just, just some story that was made up in order to communicate a truth. I think this is actual history. So with that said, let me begin our night with prayer, and then we will, we will begin. Um, Father, we, we do come to this story, and, and we recognize that there is tension here. There is a story that is not only remarkable and miraculous going on here, but there is also one that is it is remarkably heavy. Um, the, the truths that we see here in, in the story about Noah are, are heavy, and they are um, in ways shocking. And so I, I just pray that you would help us to, to take your word as your word, to take it at face value, to love and trust you um, by going to your word and, and receiving it as coming directly from you. Father, I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the only reason that you would ever want a second chance is because your first attempt went poorly. Uh, if you were able to watch the Super Bowl uh, on Sunday, two days ago, you witnessed probably one of the most boring Super Bowl games ever played. Like probably the most boring game I've ever seen for the Super Bowl. It was the New England, New England Patriots and the Los Angeles Raiders. And uh, a Ram, sorry. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Obviously, I was not engaged in the game. Um, I was very bored. No, I'm kidding. Um, so it was 3-3 it was three to three in the final quarter. Um, and, and if... If you know anything about football, uh, you realize that's a boring game. Like, it was, it was remarkable. There were mu- many more punts for the Rams than there were first downs. Like, I'll just say that. It, it, was, it was somewhat arduous to watch. But I am sure that at this point, like, the final score was 13-3. to New England wins, right? It's a close game somewhat. Uh, and at the end, it's, it's a, a, a game where New England wins in the final minutes, really. It was a tied game until the final minutes. And so at this point, if you are a, a, a fan of the LA, not Raiders, but Rams, and if you played on the Rams, I'm sure at this moment you were waking up thinking, this morning, we were so close, right? In a game that is that close, it often comes down to a couple of plays, right? There are a couple of minutes a couple of moments that decide the entire direction of the game. And if you're sitting there as a, as a Rams player or a Rams coach or a Rams fan, you're thinking to yourself, if only that one moment went our way, it could have changed the direction of the entire game. You're waking up Monday morning after losing the Super Bowl thinking, I wish we had a second chance. And the only reason they're waking up thinking that on Monday morning is because Sunday night did not go the way they wanted it to, right? If you're Tom Brady, you're not waking up in the morning saying, man, I wish I had a second chance at that. No, you won your sixth Super Bowl. 
There's no reason to go backwards and ask for a second chance. Well, when we come to the story of Noah, in many ways, what we have is a story, a narrative about a second chance. In many ways, this is a second creation story as we read through the pages of Genesis. We'll read in a moment about the similarities that come up between the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Adam. There's remarkable similarities between these two passages, and that's because this, in many ways, is a a second creation. It's It's a recreation of the world, in a sense. But for now, before we get to the similarities, I just want to point out that the reason that Genesis 6 happens the way it does is because Genesis 3 went so poorly. In a way, this is a second chance for mankind. The Noahic covenant presents itself as an opportunity for that. So, when we think about Noah, and we think about the covenant with Noah, sometimes we go directly to the flood. You think of Noah, you think of ark, animals, flood. But the covenant that God makes with Noah is not the flood. No, the covenant that God makes with Noah comes after the flood. But in order to understand the covenant, we need to understand what happens in Genesis 6 and 7 with this flood that takes place. So, to understand it, that's what we're going to do first. We're first going to look at the flood, and we're going to see what happens here, why it took place, and, and what was the purpose in the flood before we get to the covenant. So let's ask the question, why did this flood take place to start off? Why did this even happen? Why did God go to such an extent of flooding the entire world in order to rid the world of humanity? Well, the answer is found in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 5. What we see here is that the wickedness of humanity had grown to exceptional and remarkable heights. Genesis 6 verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore, the children, bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So in this this these few verses, we have two specific key insights as to why God flooded the earth. The first is a pretty odd story about the Nephilim, the sons of God coming down to the daughters of men. Now, let me just point out, this is a controversial passage. There's all sorts of interpretations. Here's where I land, and this is where many Christians land. And you might think I'm crazy for for landing here. But honestly, here's what I think is going on here. I think that this passage is talking about heavenly 
angels coming to the earth in order to sleep with women. That's how I understand this passage. I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to go into all the other interpretations. There are many. That's how I understand that. That's how many Christians have understood this passage. Notice he's comparing the sons of God with the daughters of man. And he's saying there's this intermingling that happens. And because of this, God judges the earth. So angelic beings come to the earth. They're distorting the image of God. That's how I understand this passage. It might sound wild, but I think that's what's going on here. The second reason for the flood is found in verse five. Here we see that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So it's as though he is explaining with every word possible that every aspect of, of mankind was filled and infused with evil. Not only were his actions evil, not only was the the thoughts of these men evil, but every single intention of their heart was evil. All they wanted was evil, all they did was evil, all they thought was evil. That's why God floods the earth. The flood was not a happy moment. It wasn't a happy event. It was a demonstration of God's wrath poured out on humanity. And, you know, when you read a children's book, you typically see uh, a cute story where there are smiling and happy animals, right? You have the giraffe's head sticking out the window. You have Noah and his family hanging their heads out. They have like these big grins on their faces and they're waving and there's a rainbow in the background. Everything is pleasant. It looks as though everything is going well. But let me point out that this was not an event that can be equated to some sort of cruise line sailing off into the sunset in the Caribbean. That's not what was happening on the ark. You know, Noah and his family are not just like, hey, look at us, we're with all the animals. No, let me point out that Dramamine was not a thing yet. And there was this massive storm going on and they're in a boat. And that means they weren't probably sticking their heads out the windows with smiles on their face. They were in the corner throwing up because they're sick, they're seasick. They're on this boat for days on end. They have never been in, a thing, in, a, in, a, in any sort of experience like this. Not only that, but let me point out that this was not just some rain that fell on the face of the ground for a few weeks. It wasn't like a Brentwood drizzle that we so often experience, right? This is, look at, look at the language here in, in chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. This is catastrophic. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day... All the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Notice the language that's used here. The heavens are open and rain begins to fall. So much rain is falling that even the mountains, as you read through the story of Noah, even the mountains are underneath the sea. There's so much rain falling. The next thing we see here is that 
It's as though there, there are earthquakes taking place. There's tectonic shifts happening. He's saying the, deep, the deeps are opened up. Like, what in the world does that even mean? Like, I have no clue. It seems as though the entire earth is shifting. There may be mountains forming overnight. It seems as though there are, are cracks, like, breaking forth in the ground, and water is just gushing from the bottom and from the top. This is not a, a, an experience where it's tranquil out at sea, cruising. No, this is catastrophic. This is a chaotic event. This is not a fun moment in history. This is a story about God's wrath. All of humanity was destroyed by these floodwaters. And this makes us uncomfortable, right? Like if, if you aren't very familiar with this story, you may be thinking, I've heard about Noah, but I didn't realize that happened. Maybe you're wondering, wait a second, I thought we were studying the covenants because the covenants were about God's hesed love, his steadfast love, his ongoing love, his, his faithful and patient love. I thought that's why we were studying the covenants, but this, this is about God's ferocious wrath. What's going on here? I think it's important for us to think about this for a moment. How does God's wrath coexist with God's love? How can these two seemingly contradictory attributes both exist side by side? Well, there's a theological term for this. It's called divine simplicity. Now, That does not mean that God is is simple in the sense that he's easy to comprehend and he's easy to grasp. This is a technical term that means God is not made of many parts. It's not as though there's a little bit of love over here and a little bit of wrath over here. And depending on the day, God is going to act either in his love or in his wrath. No, when we say that God is, is simple, when we believe in divine simplicity, we're saying that at any given moment and in every situation, God is acting 100% in love and in justice and in righteousness. And you go on and on and list out all of God's attributes. In any moment, all of those attributes are in play. So even in the flood, love is at play. Righteousness is at play. Wrath is at play, but not in separation from these other divine attributes like God's love. You see, it's helpful to understand this because we need to come to recognize that even in a moment like the flood, God's love is actually at work. Now, this this is not necessarily the the easiest thing to come to terms with, and in some ways this might sound absolutely absurd, but it was actually a demonstration of God's love to flood the earth. And you might be asking, how in the world is that the case? How in the world is that even the case? Well, it is actually loving for God to judge people who are acting in in wickedness, who are literally motivated thinking and acting in wickedness all day long. 
It is actually a loving thing for God to judge that person and to rid the world of unrighteousness and wickedness. That is a sign of God's love. Does not sound uh, compatible with the concept of love that our culture has, but that is a biblical notion of love. And, and I want to just... I just want to say, if, if that does not seem right to you, I, I get it. This might take time to like think about that God's love was demonstrated in the flood. It might not be an easy thing to come to terms with. Um, I, I don't want to say like, you need to come to grips with this like right now. Take time, come to this conclusion on yourself. It, it, it doesn't necessarily have to happen tonight. Think through it for, your, for yourself. Take the time to think through these sorts of uh, uh, somewhat controversial notions that come up in the Bible but I do want to encourage you that God's love is shown in many ways throughout scripture, right? Here we see God's love and his wrath and his justice at work in the flood, but we also see that that's not the only way that God deals with sinners. As we read throughout the pages of the Bible, when we get to to Christ, we see that God's justice, God's wrath, and God's love are in, in work, in the person of Jesus, but it's a completely different scenario. God's wrath is being poured out, not on humanity, but on Christ. God's judgment is being poured out, not on humanity, but on Christ, so that God might rescue the unrighteous and make them righteous and show his love and pour out his love on humanity. God's love is not limited to, to the fluffy. God's love is, is poured out in the most remarkable ways, sometimes in ways that even catch us off guard. So with that said, that gives us a context for the Noahic covenant. The flood is the background. That's the context for the, the covenant. But as we continue to read through the story of Noah, now we begin to come to what I'll call the covenant stipulations, if you will. These are, these are the, the terms of the covenant. These are the agreements of this covenant. So let's start with God's end of the agreements. Let's start with God's stipulations, God's terms. Here are the terms that God puts upon himself in this covenant with Noah. Remember, we, we've been going over this study for a couple weeks now, but a covenant is, a, is, is when two two parties enter into a relationship, a chosen relationship, and is marked by binding promises. So what are the binding promises that we see God putting upon himself in this passage? Well, we see in chapter eight, we see that God shows his kindness and he binds himself to a promise saying that he will never flood the earth again. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. 
While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And as you keep reading, you realize God is is making a promise. He will never flood the earth again. I want to take note of this now, but we'll come back to it later. Notice that God right here is making a promise, not merely to Noah, but God is making a promise to all of creation. This is actually significant. This is not just a promise to God's chosen people. From here on out, all the other covenants that we're going to talk about are specifically covenants God made with his people. This is a covenant God is making with all of creation. All human beings, those who are part of his people and those who are not. God is making this covenant with all people. We'll get back to this in a minute. But notice, there is an unconditional promise here. God is making a promise to Noah and to all of creation that he will never flood the earth ever again. And there, is, there are no stipulations to that. There, there are no conditions to that. He's just making a flat-out promise. Now, let's come back to the text. What does God call mankind to do in this covenant? Here is where it really begins to sound like Genesis 1 through 3. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to him, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. So notice the overlap here between what we see in Genesis 1 with Adam and what we see here in chapter 9 with Noah. God is telling Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And then at the very end of verse two, notice what he says. He says, into your hands, all of these animals are delivered. Now, this is very similar to the idea of Noah having dominion. So he's saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. Genesis one, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. He doesn't use the word dominion, but the idea is clearly here. All of the animals, all of creation has been given into your hands. In other words, like Adam, Noah is called to procreate and have dominion over the earth. In many ways, he is functioning like a new Adam and a new creation. But let me point out that there is one element here in this comparison that that doesn't necessarily come up in the covenant with Adam. Verses five and six, let's keep reading. Here we find a new prohibition. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from, of, uh, require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here we see murder is prohibited because man was created in the image of God murder is prohibited here but more than that notice the consequences of murder if you murder you shall be put to death in many ways this is coming out of the whole scenario with Cain and Abel we talked about that a couple of weeks ago remember Cain and Abel um, the two brothers Adam and Eve's two children Cain murders Abel. 
Now, Cain was not delivered to be put to death because this command wasn't put in place. So it's almost as though in response to the wickedness taking place in in Genesis 4, now God is introducing a new commandment. Think Think of the similarities here though. Even though it's a new command, think of how similar it is to a command that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, Adam is told, do not eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You need of any of the other trees, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God is telling Noah, you can, you can kill and eat any of the animals. Any of the animals you can eat, but you cannot kill man. The day you kill man, you shall surely die. Right? There's a parallel coming here. Now it's not talking about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now it's talking about murder, though. Adam would die the moment he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Noah is told that if he or any of his descendants kills a human being created in the image of God, he ought to be put to death. Now here's a side note. This verse here is really why so many Christians believe in capital punishment. This is debated. Not all Christians believe this, but this is the reason many people do, many Christians they will say that the, the, the idea of capital punishment is not grounded in like the Mosaic law. The idea of, the, of capital punishment is grounded in creation. Mankind has been created in the image of God. And because that is still the case, capital punishment still ought to take place. You see, as sin progresses, God gives new laws in order to limit that sort of sin. So in response to Cain's sin comes more law. And as we read throughout the Old Testament, we'll see a pattern here. As transgressions increase, law increases, which when we get to the Mosaic law, that's why it takes about four books of the Bible to depict what the Mosaic law is. It gets more and more detailed because sin and transgression gets more and more profound. So, As we compare this narrative with Adam's narrative, we see this is a second chance. It's a second creation. It's a new creation. God is telling Noah, here are the things that need to happen as we start this thing over. They didn't work out with Adam. Now let's begin yet again. Now I want to ask another question as we move on. Why does God make this covenant with Noah? This is seemingly a pretty simple question. But we have to ask, why does God choose to start over with Noah? God knew that the flood would not remove wickedness from human beings' hearts. So he destroys the earth because every thought and intention of their heart was only evil continually. And yet he knows after the flood, that's still going to be the case. Look at verse 21 in chapter 8. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And pay attention to what God is saying here. He's basically saying, even though mankind still has an evil heart, I'm not going to flood the earth ever again. 
So nothing has changed about mankind and yet I will never destroy mankind in this way ever again. So why is God creating this covenant with Noah if he knows it's not going to bring about actual change in the heart of man. Well, I think there are a couple of things for us to learn here. First off, God is teaching us a lesson here. He's showing us that there are no quick fix restart buttons in life. This is just a simple lesson for us to learn from the story of Noah. I mean, in in Genesis 3, we learned a lesson that the human heart is so easily deceived that even as a man who is not influenced by sin is standing in paradise, in the presence of God, even as mankind is living in, in the Garden of Eden with God, walking with God day by day, man still falls to the deception of wickedness, right? That didn't work. Now we're coming to Noah and we're learning another lesson here. Here's the lesson. Fresh start, restart buttons on life do not work either. There are so many things for us to consider here. When we think about this, how many times do we fall into this pattern of thinking? All I need is a quick fix and my life will be completely different. Think of like parents as a parenting lesson. You have a wayward child and you send your child to boarding school or go to Tennessee, work on a farm in the middle of nowhere so that you're removed from this situation. You can start over. Well, we're reminded here, a change of circumstance is not going to guarantee a change of heart. We also see here Actually, just, just more on that. Like, if you move off to Tennessee, you send your child off to Tennessee, you send your child off to boarding school as if that's going to fix them, they're bringing their wicked heart that got them in trouble here to the boarding school. They're bringing the same heart that got them in trouble here to Tennessee to work on the farm in the middle of nowhere. They're bringing their problems with them because at the root of the issue is going to be the same stubborn heart that is following them around wherever they go. We do the same thing, though, with ourselves. This isn't just a parenting issue. This is something we do in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own attitudes. We think that getting the restart in life is going to change everything. It's going to solve all of our problems tell ourselves, I just need the fresh start. I just need to move to a different town. I just need to to create a new Facebook account. I just need to get away from all of these people who are influencing me in the wrong direction. The lesson of Noah is that you can get rid of all the people who are leading you in the wrong direction and it doesn't change you. You You can bring someone to a different side of the earth. You can put them in an ark and separate them from the world, put them in a little cocoon so they're not influenced by anyone it still doesn't change the heart. The lesson of Noah is that there is no magical solution to our problems by running from our problems. 
a fresh restart in our circumstances is not going to bring about the lasting change that we hope for. You see, for lasting change, we need something deeper to take place. We need something deeper to, to bring about our transformation. We think, give me a new job, give me a new town, give me a new friend group, give me a new school, give me a new class, and I'm going to be able to get a new life. However, we're going to bring the same exact heart to the new job or the new town or the new friend group or the new school or the new class, the new relationship, the new marriage, bringing the same attitude, the same heart to the new circumstances. You see, we need a new heart. We need God to transform us. You see, the lesson of Noah is a preparatory lesson for the lesson of Christ. Christ comes, he doesn't just bring us to new circumstances. Christ comes, he doesn't just give us a new friend group. When Christ comes, he changes our hearts. He gives us a heart transplant. We read about this in the new covenant. That's what Jesus does. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and gave you the righteousness that you did not earn on your own, now you are made clean. And when you are made clean, God comes and dwells in you. And when God comes to dwell in you, because now you're clean, because now you're holy, because Christ has given you his righteousness, now God begins to start a transformative work. He gives you a new heart and now everything is is changed. You are alive again now in Christ and you are able to live according to God's law. You are able to live out the decrees that God has given you because he has changed you. You see, as we read through the pages of the Old Testament and we come across these different covenants, we just begin to recognize over and over and over again, the new covenant is so much better than all these preceding covenants. You can put me in paradise without any sin in my heart and I will still choose sin. You can give me a fresh restart and I will still choose go back to my old ways. You can give me a law detailing the way that I need to order every single moment of my life and it will not enable me to do so. We need God to do something greater than the law. We need God to do something greater than a fresh restart. We need something greater than than ridding us of our sin nature and planting us in paradise with God himself. We need Christ to come and make us new. All of these covenants are going to be a constant reminder of that reality. We need Jesus and the new covenant to transform us. That's what the spirit does when he comes and dwells in us. That's what Christ does when he comes and dwells in us. He transforms us. So the reason God makes this covenant with Noah is to teach us that a fresh start isn't going to bring about the lasting change that we so desire. Only Christ can do that. Now, the second reason that I think God makes this covenant to not flood the earth again is probably even more important for us to grasp. God's reason for withholding judgment is God's grace. It's really as simple and yet as profound as that. God freely decides to show grace to humanity. 
even though after the flood, they're still gonna have a wicked heart, God decides, I'm going to show them grace. I will never do this again. God doesn't have to make this covenant and yet he does. And he does so because of his grace. He does not have to do this and yet he freely chooses to. He doesn't have to spare life and yet he decides to. It's a picture of God's grace. The answer to the why God would do this question is God's hesed love. It's his, his steadfast love, his faithful love, his persevering love that he pours out on humanity, that humanity does not earn, yet God freely gives to them. You see, in reality, we deserve God's judgment, and yet he shows us his kindness. And he doesn't only show it to his people. He doesn't only show it to the church. He shows this kindness to all people. He shows this kindness to all creation, even today. Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45. These are the words of Jesus. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Okay, so... Love your enemies so that you can be like God. Here's what God does. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God freely bestows his gifts on those who do not deserve it. Luke 6, 35. Jesus says this. Love your enemies. Same command. He says, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. You want to be a son of God? You want to imitate God? You want to be like God? God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Acts 14, verse 17. Paul here is talking to Zeus-worshiping pagans. These are not Christians. And here's what Paul says, verse 17. Verse 17 of chapter 14 in the book of Acts. Yet God did not leave himself without witnesses. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and a fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is satisfying the hearts of these pagan idol worshipers with food and gladness. He doesn't have to do this. And yet he shows his grace to all of creation. Even those who are not a part of his people receive the benefits of these blessings. This is what we call common grace. There are two different types of grace that we see throughout scripture. There is common grace and there is saving grace. I think we're very familiar with saving grace. Saving grace is is the gift of the gospel that God gives to us who have faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. And yet God also shows common grace. This refers to the daily gifts that God gives all people, even though they do not deserve it. What do humans deserve? They deserve another flood. And yet God freely gives his gifts. God causes the sun to rise on both the righteous and the wicked. God gives life and breath to all people, both the just and the unjust. 
And that's what God's covenant with Noah is. It's an example of common grace. God is showing grace to all humanity, even the wicked. God is making promises to all people that he will never flood the earth again, even though their hearts are deceived from their youth. This is God's extraordinary kindness shown to all of creation. Right? The God of the universe, the holy and righteous God that we were just singing about, holy, holy, holy is this God almighty. He is pouring out his hesed love, his steadfast love on those who curse him. He's not destroying them as they deserve. He's giving them life. He's giving them breath. He's enabling them to enjoy the simple things in life like food and drink. Now, there is so much we can unpack here, and so we're going to spend the rest of our night thinking about this, the fact that God shows common grace to all people. Here's the first lesson that we can learn here. Because God shows kindness to undeserving sinners, even to those who never repent of their sin and never become a part of the people of God, we ought to imitate him. We ought to imitate God. By showing kindness, even to the most bigoted racists out there, we show them kindness and love. Even to the adamant defender of abortion, we show them love. Not because they deserve it, but because they're made in the image of God. Because God allows his son to shine on them. So we don't take matters into our own hands. We allow God to deal with that situation, showing them love even when it hurts, right? This is why Jesus is calling us to show love to our enemies even when it hurts, even when our kindness is is returned with with punches, (laughs) smacks to the face, we still show kindness. We ought to show love and respect towards every human life, regardless of whether or not that individual is willing to return the same sort of love towards us. God shows creation unmerited favor and therefore we choose to do the same because we are striving to be like our heavenly father. But that's not what we tend to do. Typically, right, our desire is for our love to be transactional. I give you love because you give me love in return. I care for you because you care for me. I do what you want because you do what I want. That's the sort of love that we are naturally drawn to. But this is not the type of love that God is calling us to. He is calling us to love others without expecting anything in return. He's calling us to love others when all we're getting at, uh, all we're getting in return is persecution. We're getting imprisonment. God is calling us to love our enemies. If you want to remove any sort of transactional nature of your love, then try to love those who hate you. Try to love those who who curse you, those who respond to your love with backbiting and gossip. Those are the types of people that God is calling us to love. I just read two separate passages from Jesus' mouth calling us to love our enemies. And the only way that, that we can learn to do that is by looking to God, our Father, who does the same exact thing moment by moment, giving breath to individuals who do not deserve 
breath to enter into their lungs because the only thing they're going to do with that breath is curse others. And yet God gives them breath. Gives them another moment to hopefully by his grace turn to Christ. Jesus is saying we need to learn from God's common grace. Learn from the fact that he loves his enemies even those who do not respond to his kindness with thanksgiving. Now let's take this further. There are more lessons we can learn from God's common grace. And to be honest, this one's a, a little more fun. It's a little lighter. This is, this is actually helpful for us as we're seeking to live out our daily lives in a world where uh, it's filled with all sorts of enjoyments. What do we do with those enjoyments, especially when they come to us from people who are not Christians? Like, what do we do with that? Like, God shows his common grace to people by giving them the capacities, giving them the ability to function in his creation, even though they have fallen under the sway of sin. Let me just read this one more time. God shows his common grace by giving people the capacities or the abilities to function in his creation, even though they have fallen under the sway of sin. For example, God does not take away someone's ability to think or reason just because they often use their minds for the sake of sin. God does not Remove someone's ability to create beautiful things simply because they use their creativity often for wicked things. God enables people to think. He enables people to reason. He enables people to create beauty. Even those who are not a part of the people of God. Sin may influence an individual's reason, but it doesn't altogether prohibit that individual from having the capacity to seek out truth. Sin may hinder an individual's ability to create beautiful things, but it doesn't altogether prohibit them from creating beautiful things. Maybe right now you're thinking, okay, so what? Like, what's the point? What are you getting at? This gives us freedom as Christians to enjoy the things of this world. As Christians, we can enjoy the beauty that people create even when those creators are not Christians. We can appreciate the joy that comes from listening to a song or reading a book, even when that song or book is not created by a member of the people of God. God gives people the ability to see truth in life, to see beauty in life, and to communicate that, irregardless of whether or not they're a Christian or not. This is a part of God's common grace. Just because someone has been affected by the fall does not mean that they cannot think true things or create beautiful things. God's common grace extends to people so that they can still create beautiful things, still create wonderful stories, still still speak truth. So... God gives people the ability to seek out truth in the world. Even people who are not Christians, they can learn. They can become intelligent and they can teach other people. So we can learn from people who are not Christians. 
because they are created in the image of God and because God is, is showing them his common grace. There are lessons to learn from the individual who is an economist, but not a Christian. We can learn from the biologist who's not a Christian simply because that person has been created in the image of God and they have received common grace. Let me balance this out. We also need to keep in mind that people are influenced by sin. So as the non-Christian writes the beautiful story, we will see elements of sin within that story. As the individual sings a a beautiful song, you might still find hints of a, a, a false worldview seeping through in the lyrics. That's why I like classical music. Um, <laughs> um, there's no singing sometimes, often. You can, you can learn from someone in a classroom, even though they are not a Christian, but you need to weigh what they're saying because sometimes what they're saying will be influenced by untrue things. But this does give us freedom as Christians. We can enjoy food that people create regardless of whether or not they're a Christian or not, you can enjoy beautiful music created by a person who's, who's in the image of God, regardless of whether or not they're a part of the, the church. It's because God's grace is still being poured out on humanity. Now, there are, there are tons of implications here. We can talk about seeking truth. We can talk about learning a lot more, but we, we aren't gonna keep going there. The basic idea that I want to hit here is that we can appreciate the beauty that comes at us in this world. We can appreciate truth that comes from individuals who are, who are of this world. And yet, when we're hearing this truth, when we're seeing this beauty, when we're having conversations with these individuals, we also need to be weighing what they are saying with the truth of Scripture. That's the basic idea here. We need to recognize that Everyone is affected by the fall and the fall will come out in the things they say, the things they sing, the things they create. And yet they are still able to create beautiful things, say beautiful things, say helpful things. That said, enjoy the creativity that, you be, that you're able to see in the world because it is a gift from God. Enjoy what you are learning in the classroom, even if it's coming from an individual who's not a Christian because that too is a gift from God. Like I said, there's so much more to hit on here, but that's why uh, we're going over this on Sundays. We're also going through this in our small groups here. So that's where I'm going to end tonight. But I hope that as we're studying the covenant with Noah, that God created with Noah, I, I'm hoping that you're beginning to see things that are helping you understand the world, helping you understand scripture. But ultimately, I'm hoping that these things are helping you to anticipate Christ and the beauty of Jesus as he comes as the ultimate fulfillment of all of these biblical covenants. Let's pray.